Our Wednesday night Bible studies where we take uh, the Bible, go through it verse by verse, uh, take a book and then kind of dissect it and get a uh, look into it and see what's there for us to learn from God's word and uh, we just kind of let the word speak for itself and uh, you know build on it but uh, it's pretty much just coming back to what the scripture has to say and what we're trying to do is look at <clears throat> when, when these guys wrote these wonderful life-giving words of God uh, they did so in context they didn't just write one little verse here and one little verse there and oftentimes when we study uh, s- spiritual things we tend to do that we'll jump from here and over here it says this and over here it says that and you'll see me do that on Sunday mornings and I even do it on Wednesday nights but we're, just, but we're still trying to get back to the basic let's read it in context what were they saying at the time they were saying it how did one phrase have to do with the other that was before it or, or what's coming ahead that sort of thing so anyway now Paul is writing to Timothy uh, this young man that he loves like a son and uh, instructing him in how to conduct himself as a minister of the gospel of, of Jesus Christ in this thing called the church. Now I have to understand, uh, there was no such thing as a church up until a handful of years before they were even doing this. I mean, this is everything is extraordinarily new to them. And uh, while they were building on the uh, uh, the foundation of the uh, scriptures in the Old Testament and 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 pick up some of the traditions there and stuff all of this new walking by faith and walking in grace and and uh and not being dictated by uh 613 commandments of the old testament or whatever it is um how do we approach this wonderful thing that we have that's that we've experienced through christ faith in christ that has brought forgiveness of our sins and the the power of the holy spirit that has brought miracles into our lives, into their lives, and, they, and it was it was fascinating stuff. So, um, one of Paul's great uh, challenges was as he went preaching and watching the the Gentile churches, which which what we would be considered. <clears throat> there was the Jewish Christians, and then there were the non-Jewish Christians called the Gentile Christians, and Paul pretty much was in charge of all of them. Or as the Jewish Christians, the apostles for the most part just spent their time with them. They didn't really venture much out beyond that which i think is kind of sad but that's some that's another sermon we can uh, debate sometime but uh, paul pretty much felt the call to go to people who were not jews and and taking people who their only point of reference was a heathen lifestyle a pagan lifestyle i mean these were people who did things that were bizarre and strange and you know idolatries and uh you know talk about having no foundation his job was much harder than the other apostles who were coming to those who had been raised in the Jewish faith and and knew about the Messiah and knew about the laws of God and righteousness and the Ten Commandments and all these things that he could they could build on this wonderful foundation that had already been laid in people's lives well when Peter or, or when Paul came to the the Gentiles that had no such foundation I mean their foundation was you know, sacrificing to idols and, and, you know, bizarre sexual things that they were into. Uh, it was actually one of the reasons why uh, uh, Christians had a hard time even uh, handling this whole idea of sexuality. We, we read, not last week, because we were off last week because of, the, because of the storm, but the week before, where, um, you know, there was this thinking that anything good must be sinful. Well, Paul said, that, well, that's nonsense. But they, they had this, they had a hard time separating what was good 
from what was sinful because everything they'd done was so extreme and so sinful. And uh, one of the reasons that uh, Christians historically for the first several hundred years really struggled with, gee, can you really be married and have sex and, and stuff? You know, this, it must be sinful. This, this is, this is. And, but their whole point of reference of sexual things was so perverted, they had a hard time. The Christians... Or, or that were brought in the Jewish thing. They had thousands of years of, of looking at uh, uh, sexual things and stuff like that and, and any kind of pleasures in, in, in terms of, of how God viewed things. And it was much healthier for them. Uh, that's why the church struggled with many of that because so many of them, the only point of reference they had was their heathen ways. And uh, um, <clears throat> if, if you read church history, you know, for the first several hundred years, you know, all the pastors, all the priests, all the everything, even the popes after the Catholic Church was initially started, were all married, all had wives, children, the whole deal. But they felt extraordinarily guilty about this thing. And then they started coming up with rules that, you know, well, gee, if you're going to serve Mass, make sure you you don't have sex so many hours before, don't have it that day, or don't do it that week. And I mean, okay, go on and on, until they finally, then they came up with, well, you could be married, but you couldn't have sex. This is true. This is bizarre stuff, you know, and you can imagine the tension in those homes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> talk about having a rough time uh, and then they finally said well forget it we'll take vows of chastity so we can't get over this at all uh, and then they would have nothing to do with women because they, they, could, they couldn't view anything uh, had a hard time viewing it in, in terms of a sanctified lifestyle um, they would be punished if they were even caught talking to a woman and punished rather severely even if it was their mo- own mothers I mean, they, they just couldn't have anything. And it just got bizarre and more and more twisted and stuff. Why? Because one of the reasons that the early church struggled with so many of these things that actually carried for thousands of years in some cases is because of the lack of foundation. Does that make sense to you? I mean, they didn't have look at things from a godly uh, perspective. They didn't have thousands of years. If there's one thing that the church really lost when the Jewish community finally said, well, we don't want anything to do with Christianity. And they pretty much split and then Christians were kind of on their own. We lost thousands of years of looking at things from a healthy perspective and and uh, and even though the church was walking in god's grace and forgiveness and stuff a lot of the weirdness that you see in early christianity and some of the weirdness that even creeps into to this day is a result of all of those years of people coming to christ but having no foundation uh one of the problems that people struggle with in fact a lot of you even in your own lives is uh you come to christ you know i don't know when you're 20 when you're 40 when you're 50 you know you got decades of doing things the wrong way you know what i'm talking about and then all of a sudden you're learning this stuff and this is exciting and 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 you kind of stumble a lot and you struggle and stuff and 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 that's normal and and we encourage you and pray for you and stuff like that but the reason that is is because you have so many years of doing it the wrong way it's quite the challenge to start processing stuff in a new way Uh, that's why i'm so thrilled when you guys come on wednesday nights this is the time where we really get a chance to get into the word and and start building proper thinking a proper foundation in our heads All right, so let's pick it up here. We're at uh, verse 9 in chapter 4. And uh, Paul says this to Timothy. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. He's about to say something that's just absolutely true, he says. And for this, uh, this truth, basically, this is what we labor and strive for. That we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Now, this is the truth. This is what he's building this whole thing. God is the savior of all men. Jesus came to be the savior, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And, uh, and, and this is particularly true for those who have reached out and, and ex- experienced his forgiveness and grace. That we're born again and stuff like that. Um, that's what he's saying here. Uh, but it's an interesting verse. These are one of these verses in the Bible that 
people like to take and twist. Because if you look at it just right, it can seem a little odd. And uh, take a look at it. It says, uh, we put our hope in the living God who is the savior of all men and especially those who believe. And the twisted thinking is those people who say, well, everyone is saved. Everyone in the world is saved. Even the Bible says everybody's saved. Really? Yes. Yeah, right here it says in Timothy. He's the savior of all men, especially those who believe. In other words, believe those who believe are, you know, especially dear to them. But he saves everybody. Everybody says, no, 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 no. That's not what he's talking about. Okay, Jesus did come to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The crazy thing about it is all the debts of the world have been paid. But most people reject that and they refuse to believe it. As a result, they are not saved. Okay, so it's just one of those, somebody ever gives you that line and throws this verse at you, just get a clue what what, what they're talking about here. Everyone is not saved. Salvation is available for everyone. That is true. Thank God for that. It includes you, <laughs> you know, as, as rotten as you might have been or as much as you might struggle in life. You're part of the all. You know, you're part of the whosoever. The Bible says whosoever believes will be saved. Uh, but just when, when you make statements like that, it's not that everybody is automatically saved because he's the savior of all men. It's that they have to believe. You can't. And, and this is always true. Don't ever take little bits of verses that might say something and try and build on it if it totally contradicts other things in the Bible. You see, and that's where some people say, well, the Bible's contradictory. No, it's not. It's your contradictory. Your thinking's wacko. If you think that's what that means, then yeah, the Bible's contradictory, but it's not contradictory. That's, you're, you're, making, you're building a case on something that's not there. The whole thing about Christianity is you have to believe. You need to repent of your sins. You need to believe and put your hope in God and follow Jesus Christ. This, you need to pick up your cross follow him. This is salvation. This is the Christian message. You know, to take some phrase like this and build something that contradicts everything else that's in the Bible. Ah, 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 ah. You can't do that. Alright? It's all got to work together. Then he goes on and he says, command and teach these things. Alright? Remember, he's, he's a young preacher. He's telling him what to do. These are the kind of things you need to teach, command, build this up in the church and then I like this next one, verse 12 don't let anyone look down on you because you are young now how do you do that when he says don't let anyone look down on you because you're young what do you think that means, he went around and punched people in the face that didn't like him because he was young you can't control what other people do, right the don't let that he's talking about is talking to Timothy don't you let People bum you out, is what he's trying to encourage them. Someone comes along and says, well, you're just a young guy. You don't know nothing. You're just an idiot and a moron. Don't let them bum you out. And a lot of times people will even challenge young people in faith. And it's not designed to discourage them. It's designed to challenge them. It's easy to get discouraged. And what he's trying to say to this young believer, don't let that happen. Don't let people look down on you and rob you of your faith, rob you of your joy. And this can be true of, of virtually any area of life Jesus said don't let your hearts be troubled don't let your hearts be troubled now there's lots of things in life that will trouble your heart <laughs> profoundly so um, you know people get bad news from time to time it doesn't mean God has forsaken you sometimes God is in the midst of some of the biggest trials of your life God is right in there uh, if you doubt that read the book of Job 
talk about a bad day this guy had. I mean, one disaster after another, after another, after another. And here's a man who at the end of that day lifted his hands and praised God and worshiped God. Why? Because here's a guy who refused to let his heart be troubled. I'm not going to let this stuff bother me. Now how? I generally don't let a lot of things bother me. But then again, I didn't have everything lost in my life and all my kids didn't get killed. You know, I mean, what all happened to him in that day was inconceivable, quite frankly. But talk about a man of righteousness that after such a miserable, horrendous set of circumstances that would most of us, just a piece of any of those, we'd have freaked. And probably me, right along with it. I mean, there was some horrible things that happened to him that day. Lost everything that was valuable to him. The devil took everything. Except one thing, you know what it was? His wife. (laughs) I just think that's kind of funny. Ah, uh, devil knows how to get to you some days, you know. And what does she do? She turns around and criticizes him. You know, I just, oh man, I'm sure there are days we're thinking, couldn't you take her too? Hello, you know. But anyway, it was very, but out horrible, horrible circumstances. But he did not let that stuff affect him. Um, we're going to be talking about a little bit of that over the next uh, couple of weeks on Sunday morning. Uh, of course, if you're watching my video, I don't know what the time frame that people are watching this uh, or listening to it, so it won't make any sense based on when you're watching it, but over the next couple of weeks, I'm doing a, a series of messages called How to Beat the Blues. <laughs> don't miss it. It's going to be cool. All right, but that's part of it. Don't let anybody look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech, the way you talk, in life, the way you live, in love, the way you love people, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching, to teaching. This is what he's supposed to do. Again, he's instructing this young preacher. This is what you need to be doing. Stand your ground. Don't let people look down on you. I know you're young. Uh, We'll see uh, when we get into 2 Timothy here that he was... uh, he has a long line of, uh, of, of believers in his family. He's, he's a third generation, multi-generational faith. Um, and, uh, and tell them, you know, read the scripture, man. Preach, teach. That's what you're supposed to do. Do not neglect your gift. That doesn't tell us what that gift is. Remember, part of the challenge of reading this sometimes is we're jumping in on a conversation that we don't know what's been said before or, or whatever. Some, kind of, some of the challenges sometimes in these epistles. <clears throat> but uh, do not neglect your gift which was uh, given uh, you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. So when they, when they adore, uh, ordained this young man, uh, the elders got around, they laid his hands, their hands on him, which is a scriptural thing to do. They prayed for him. Someone on the anointing of the Holy Spirit spoke a prophetic word over them, uh, something about uh, the gift of God in him and how God was going to use him and, and those kind of things. And, and Paul's just reminding him of those things. Don't neglect these things you know, as, as you started your ministry and fulfill what God's called you to do. What specifically all that was, we, we, don't, we don't know. Okay. Um, uh, be diligent in these matters give yourself wholly to them talking about passion, commitment so that everyone may see your progress watch your life and doctrine closely watch your life and your doctrine closely Uh, uh, these are both challenges how do you really live how you live in your life how how are, are are you walking this stuff out do you live this stuff at home you know that's always to me been the ultimate measuring stick uh, in anybody's life, 
people who come to me and tell me how spiritual they are, <clears throat> I, I look right past at them and, and look at their kids and their spouse. <laughs> See how are they treating them? How are things back on the home front? If your home stinks, you're not nearly as spiritual as you think you are. You need to live this stuff out. Be careful how you live. And also your doctrine. Why do you need to be careful of your doctrine? Because what we believe and think about God and, and why the importance of, of, of getting together and studying the scriptures here is so that our thinking, our doctrine, our, the way we process uh, what spiritual truths are all about is, uh, is what we believe truly biblical. This is, this is the measuring stick that we have. And uh, anything that you get has to be measured against this. You think you got a revelation for God? You need to measure it against this. Does it stand up to the scrutiny of the word of God? You think you have a prophetic word? Does it measure up against it? Do you think God told you something? Here's the measuring stick. Uh, <clears throat> heard of a guy today, you know, God spoke to him, you know, to, to leave his wife. Um, uh, was that a word of God? I mean, some people go, well, the Lord spoke to him, must have been God. No, 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 no. The Bible teaches that blatantly. God is not schizophrenic. God would not say, this is the truth, and then a word of God speaks to you to do something totally different. That person who's doing that is just out of his mind. Certainly not scriptural, and he's in sin, and he's violating the, the laws of God. God doesn't tell people to do things, um, you know, that would be contrary to his word. I've, I've heard this many, many times. Uh, in my Christian life, the last 40 years or so, people who, you know, say, well, God told me this and God told me that. And they would come up with some of the bizarre things. You know, God told me to, you know, I'm supposed to leave my wife and marry that really cute babe over there. I just, I just know it's God. I can feel it in my spirit. You know, well, I don't think that's, I don't think that's your spirit you're feeling, Jack. <laughs> you know, and, and quite frankly, I don't care if an angel himself appears to you. And the Bible talks about it, you know, even if an angel himself were to appear to you in technical I mean more than just you know most people when they say that I feel God told me something what they're really saying is they, they kind of feel it inside they're not quite sure but they, you know that's really that's what you ought to be saying you know I've said this to you a hundred times and I'll say it until I'm a really old geezer and you kick me out of this place ease up with a God told me talk personally I don't think you should say it I don't, unless God I mean unless God told you and even then you need to be up to people getting in your face about that to see whether or not it's true so why, why, why are you against people saying that? Because it's, how do you speak in someone's life? Man, if I tell you, you know, God told me this, well, what are you going to say to me? If you're a pastor, I think, I think God told me to, to stand on my head. How do you answer that? If God told you, what am I supposed to say to you? Now, of course, I probably would anyway because I, I don't buy all that stuff. You know, I think, you know, if God, why would God tell you to stand on your head? You know, I'll get in your face about it. And if at the end of the day you still think God told you to stand on your head, don't be mad at me. The Bible says let the prophets judge and the others, the, you know, the prophets speak and the others judge. You think God has called you and it's God speaking to you? It's appropriate for other people to get in your face and challenge you about it. That's what the Bible teaches. You know, so don't, you know, really God told me as a Christian the way of saying don't challenge me. It's a scriptural way of saying shut up. Not the scriptural way, the spiritual way. The phony spiritual way, it's not scriptural at all. Well, God told me. Oh, okay, God told you, you know. And, and, and people freak out and they get quiet. But I don't care if an angel himself appears to you. I'm talking literally. Technicolor, lights, music. And I, I'm telling you, sister, you need to go get that other man's, uh, get that other wife, that girl's husband, and you need to go minister somewhere in Zimbabwe. And steal a bunch of church money on the way out the door. I don't care 
if it was an angel. I don't care what you saw. It's wrong. Why? It goes against this. Are you hearing me? Man, we, this is always the standard. Don't let people come because they felt, smelt, touched something. Lead, now, if someone comes along and it's scriptural and there's other confirmations and an angel appears to you, about, now we're talking. Now we got something. Okay, I'm all there for that. So I love God speaking in people's lives. God still talks. Most of us don't listen. But God's moving us out. All that's cool. But not, you can't just use some kind of spiritual revelations and ignore the word of God. So he's trying to give them, hey, be careful how you live. Be careful in your doctrine, how you think, how you uh, value spiritual things. All right, blah, 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 blah. Where was I? Verse 16, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. That's the ultimate goal in the end, that we be saved. If we don't, if we don't make it into the kingdom of God because we get so off on false doctrine and stuff, what in the world is the point? Uh, chapter 5. <coughs> Forgive me, I'm sorry. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1. And, and keep in mind, these weren't written in chapters. This was all chopped up later. He just keeps writing. He says, uh, he instructs him, don't rebuke an older man harshly. You got somebody old in the faith, a little respect. A little respect, even if he's complete wacko. Don't rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Again, respect. Uh, treat younger men as brothers. All right, all of this really has to do with respect. Treat older women as, as mothers. Again, respect. Don't be distant people. And younger women as, as sisters with absolute purity. You should be looking at all the girls around you as these are sisters in Christ. Um, give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. Okay, now. Now, 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 now. Okay, now. I'm going to take you back to the book of Acts. We do this a lot just to give you a point of reference here. Because he's about to go into a whole slew of stuff that won't make any sense. Or be hard to understand if we don't go back and put it in context. Go back to the book of Acts. In chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Jesus had just been taken up into heaven. Day of Pentecost come. He said, guys, Holy Spirit's going to come. Go preach the gospel. I'll be right back. All right. Now you have to understand, when these guys heard Jesus say, I'm coming back, it was like he's going out to Quick Trip or something, and he's going to be right back. No way in the world did they ever comprehend it would be 2,000 years later before this is even getting close to happening. I mean, and because he never told them the time. I mean, that would, wouldn't you think? Hey, I'm, I'm going to heaven, go do the stuff, I'll be back. Cool. He's coming back. So, they just uh, preached their first sermon after the Holy Spirit came. Thousands of people got saved from the one uh, sermon, quite the sermon. And uh, about 3,000 people were saved in that one deal. Uh, uh, And it says in verse 42, chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and and to the fellowship. They were committed to each other. Getting in the word, fellowship with one another. To the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. I mean, the power of God is moving like crazy. But here's what what I want you to see. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. 
Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. And they broke bread uh, in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Look at chapter 4 verse 32. More and more people are getting saved. God's moving. Revival's breaking out. The place is going crazy. It says all the believers were of one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. But they shared everything they had. Uh, uh, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And much grace was upon them all. There was no needy persons among them. Uh, for time to time, those who owned lands and houses sold them. Brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and brought it at the apostles' feet. Why do they point that out? Because Barnabas becomes a player later in the story. As we read the history of the church, Paul and Barnabas hook up together and they go preaching the gospel all over the place. But anyway, here's the point. They basically... When they got saved, with the urgency of preaching the gospel and the passion of reaching the world and thinking Jesus was coming back at any possible moment, they took everything they had and sold everything. And they gave 100% pretty much of their possessions into the kingdom of God, at least in the, in the early church. And we're talking earliest, earliest. Of, I mean, this is just the whole thing's just starting. They basically created a big commune. These were the, your first hippies. Hippies for Jesus, all right? And uh, uh, you talk about people whining about tithing. <laughs> tithing? That's jack squat to these people. They sold everything. Everything they had, put it in uh, into one common pot, and then everybody had everything that they need. This was, this was you, know, you know, communism to the max here. This is, this, is, uh, <clears throat> this is the perfect socialist dream. Everybody has everything the same. Nobody has more than another. You know, so-and-so doesn't have 100000 in the bank. And you only have twelve. Everybody has nothing in the bank. But we all share the money equally. And as the needs go, and da 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 Now, it sounds very idealistic. Uh, and, in fact, it was. And you're going to see in a minute here, they started getting themselves in trouble. Uh, and the church quickly, well, I don't know how quickly it was, but they moved away from that, which we'll see in a little bit with Timothy here. But you just got to see the context of what, you know, Paul, remember Paul was writing and saying, man, work with your own hands, get a job. He even wrote, he says, we got to teach people to work with their own hands. Why was he saying that? Because so many of them were just trying to be hippies for Jesus. And they just said, well, Jesus has come out, I don't need to work, man, we just sell whatever we got, we just all huddle together and just yeehaw and wait for everything to come together. And, and they were being lazy, they were being slothful, they were being slugs. And he's trying to stop, 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 get out there, be productive. Follow what I do. So he actually had to, there was some correction in the early church uh, concerning these things. So th- this was like 100% total sellout. Uh, um, you know, I, uh, y'all remember that, how many geezers like me? You remember the Jesus movement back in the early 70s? Anybody remember some of that stuff? Yeah, yeah. I was part of that, Debbie and I. And uh, we were part of a group like this. And uh, we thought, we're getting back to the word. We're getting back to the word, the word, the word, but the extreme part of the early church kind of word. And, uh, you know, because Jesus said, forsake all, follow me, right? He didn't come up and say to people, hey, give 10%. Read it. 
I mean, people who don't like the idea of tithing, it's kind of funny. The only other, there's no tithing in the New Testament. Well, there is, but the only other percentage you'll find in the New Testament is 100%. <laughs> if I were you, I'd run with the 10. But Jesus came to people and said, forsake all. They left everything. He says they left their fathers, their, their families, their nets, their boats, all their investments, their businesses. Just turn and walk from them. Just like that. At the moment, he said, follow me. Stop and think of how powerful that was. So they were doing all this. And of course, you know, early Christians, and we'd all been saved for, you know, all of 10 weeks, and we knew everything. And, uh, yeah, that's what the Bible says. Look, they did that in the early, you know. And we were basically a bunch of hippies for Jesus in those early days. Five years we did this. Uh, Deb's and I's first house was an 8 by 10 tent. It's true. We lived in it for a year. You say, you know, did you live someplace warm? Not necessarily, no. Uh, there were days where, you know, we'd have to take the, a candle and light it and melt the ice off the zipper so we could get out in the morning. I, we're too hip. I'm talking hippies, man, but we love Jesus. Woohoo! You know, hippies for Jesus. I, I understand this, you know, it was almost really cult-like, the whole thing, and God finally got, got us out of it. There's a lot of weird stuff happening back in those early days, but mainly because of not sound doctrine, the very thing I'm talking to you about. If you don't know the Bible, somebody comes along, what's what the Bible says? And don't just buy because I or anybody else tells you that's what the Bible says. Go check it out for yourself. Go check. In fact, in, in the book of Acts, uh, one of these days we're going to do the whole book of Acts. Seems like I do half of it now. But uh, um, uh, in the book of Acts, uh, uh, there, there was a group of people called the Bereans. The city of Berea, the Bereans. And, and they came and taught and, and, and uh, uh, the, the apostles preached the gospel there. And it says... The Bereans went and checked out the scriptures to see if what they were saying was true. They didn't believe them. And the Bible praises them for it. They were more noble than any of the rest. Why? That's what God wants you to do. Matter of fact, I come and say, well, the Bible says that. You need to go see if the Bible says that. Well, Pastor Mark says this. Well, don't man just, you know, now I'm trying my best not to lead you astray, you know, and, and I appreciate people say, well, Pastor Mark says this. I believe it. No, no, no. You need to get it so the Bible believes it. You know that old phrase, the Bible says that I believe it, that settles it. Not Pastor Mark said it, and I believe it, and that settles it. You know, Pastor Mark isn't always right, so I've heard. <laughs> I, I think I'm right, everybody thinks they're right. But everybody's got to step back a little bit and say, you know, I really think this, but I could be wrong. You know? I could be wrong. <clears throat> I don't think I'm wrong, but of course I could be wrong. <laughs> So, so anyway, I mean, it just absolutely fascinates us. So, so here's, here's the context. In fact, in chapter 5, look at this. A, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself and brought the rest of it uh, and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Some people say, well, God judged him because he didn't give 100%. No, it was what they lied about it. That's what got him in trouble. Watch. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And even after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? You could have done whatever you wanted. What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. What's he talking about? What they basically did is like, you know, everybody was caught up in this frenzy of selling everything for Jesus. And it was the cool thing to do. Well, Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira, this guy and his wife, it would be like, you know, they sold a house for a hundred grand. You maybe had this little house they sold for a hundred grand, but they told everybody, man, we, we sold this place and, and we, we, got, we got 50 grand for it. Wasn't that great? But we got 50 grand and we're giving it, all of it to the church. Praise God. Everybody celebrates. Yeah, he's a totally committed guy. Well, what, what's the, what is he doing? They're lying, see. 
They could have kept the whole single thing, what Peter just said, but they lied. But this was this, this was the pressure. There was peer pressure. You're talking about peer pressure. Peer pressure to give everything to Jesus. You mean you got a savings account? What? You got investments? What? You got a house? You own a house? What? You own two houses? Ah! Shibboleth! You know, whatever we're talking about on Sunday. You know. <laughs> now, now, all of those things are fine, but I'm telling you, in this context, at this time in the church, that was totally uncool. Man, you think about iron shoppering iron here. I mean, these people were like, man, if you, you got money saved, what are you, a heathen? I mean, this, this was heavy pressure. So these guys, because they wanted to be in with everybody else, said they gave everything when in fact that they didn't. And look what happened. When Ananias, in verse 5, when Ananias heard this, he fell down dead and died. Holy cow. And great fear seized all who heard that, uh, what had happened. I'll bet. Now when people got coming forward and say, I'm a believer in Jesus and they drop dead, that'll put the fear of God in you right there. We have people flopping over dead in here because they're lying to God and fooling themselves. Woo! That's when you know revival's here. <clears throat> then the young man came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. <laughs> like a cat. And then a lot. Why should even know about it? Shouldn't you inform the widow? They pick the guy up, wrap him up, dig a hole, throw him in it. Shouldn't you wait for a coroner or something? About three, and this all happened in, in a few hours. Three hours later, his wife comes in, doesn't know what happened. Doesn't know that he died, they buried him already. Peter said, uh, tell me, is this the price you paid that you and Ananias got for the land? She said, yep, it sure is. Claiming to be something that they weren't. Claiming to feign, to falsify that they were really committed like everybody else. They wanted to be cool like everybody else. And Peter said, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door. And they're going to carry you out also. And at that moment she fell down and died. Holy stinking cow. This is like, yo, you know. If I start talking to people and they drop dead, you better listen to me. Good news is that's not going to happen anytime soon, I'll tell you that. But, uh... <clears throat> pretty well okay so now check it out all this is set up this next thing look at chapter six in those days when the number of disciples was increasing the grecian jews the greek jews uh, among them complained against the hebraic jews uh, remember everybody was jews okay they didn't even think you and i could have a chance in their mind a puerto rican could never get into heaven there was just no way, you know, no way a white guy could get in heaven. No way, I mean, there was just no way. If you weren't Jewish, it just, they didn't, they didn't see how it could be possible. They changed their thinking later, but we don't have time for that. Um, uh, anyway, so these, these, the Greek Jews and the Hebrew Jews uh, were arguing because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men among you who are known to be full of wisdom, the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give, uh, we will give our attention to, to prayer and the ministry of the word. A lot of things here. These are the first deacons. Deacons were basically put in to deal with the daily hands-on type activities in the church. Um, we don't get into all the titles and stuff like that, but I basically have. In, in a lot of ways, there's, there's deacons in the church who help in ministries. In, in one real sense, 
a lot of my staff, support staff that we have, are kind of deacon. They help us uh, do out the will of God. We've got our advice, advisory council and that kind. Again, we don't get into all, all, to name, all the names and stuff about it. But uh, it, the goal was that you let other people do that. We're just going to give ourselves, the apostle said, the leaders of the church, to just, we're just going to pray in the ministry of the word. That's what I try to do. That's why I don't know what's going on around here. 89% of the time. And that's that's being nice to me. It's probably more like 99% of the time. Why? I don't know what's going on. I don't know who's in charge of water out here. I just, you know, people come to me all the time. What about this? Really? I didn't even know we were doing that. You know? Uh, so, well, it's been on the bulletin. I don't ever read the bulletin. I don't know, you know? So, um, you know, and I send people a different... A lot of you come to me and I always send you somewhere else. because I, I don't honestly know. Why? I, I don't get into it. I don't do a lot of staff meetings. You know, I snuck in for a little while today to cause havoc and terrorize them uh but uh not really but uh you know and things and i don't do a whole lot of counseling and stuff with people quite frankly you you really don't want me counseling you (laughs) i I kid you not i'm not the nicest guy in the world if you doubt it ask some of the people who've come to speak to me you know uh you know it's one thing when you're all stand sitting in a car like this and say don't be an idiot and you all laugh because I'm talking to the guy next to you. You know what I'm saying? When you're the only guy in the room and I yell, don't be an idiot. That's a little harsh. Okay. And Marky kind of has one volume on and off. And uh, so we have lots of other people who are a lot more sensitive. I, I try to basically give the majority of my time. So when I get up, I got something to say. And I'm not uh, just um, you know, doing five million other things. And, and the people say, Oh, you're really, really busy. I travel a lot, but I'm not really all that busy. I'm really not. Those who know me best know I'm not. I mean, I, I've got to be one place or the other. Most of my time, I'm meditating. I'm thinking. I'm preparing for uh, the messages. I'm, I'm reading the word. I'm trying to get in a place where I've got something to share. And, and it's a biblical thing. That's what these guys did. Now, all of that to say this. All of this was based on a fight over the money. That's what it came down to. They were fighting over the money. You know, uh, at the bottom line, somebody had to make the call about who gets how much money. I mean, that's always the one thing. You know, people always say, you know, one of the things against, one of the knocks against a church like like Celebration Church. And uh, there's a lot of them like ours. Actually, some of the biggest churches in the country tend to be like ours that are pastor-led churches. Why do I say that? Because they're not so much... People don't vote on things and stuff. Those those systems that 99% of churches have actually hinders those churches. It's just, it's the inmates running the asylum. It would be like, you know, everybody in the factory voting on what the boss should do for the day. It's just ridiculous, you know. But if they want to be in the church, God bless them, have a great time. They tend to be smaller churches. You know, and the argument behind that is, well, we're not going to just, it's not right that one man make all the calls. Well, we try to structure it really that not one man's making all the calls around here anyway. But ultimately, there's always one guy making the call. I don't care where. If you set up a, a board of elders, one guy, if you've ever, anybody ever been on a church board, <laughs> there's always one guy that dominates everybody. It's the guy, you know, maybe, you know instead, of, instead, of, instead of it being the pastor, it's someone who spent all day, you know, milking cows or, or building houses or something. I mean, ideally, if you're going to have one guy who's going to have overwhelming influence, it should be the guy, man of God, who gives himself to the word of God in prayer. Wouldn't you think? It would make sense to me. But there's always one guy. And even in this situation, b- bottom line, somebody was in charge. Somebody has to make the call. 
you know, I was, I was just talking with some people the other day, you know, about, you know, why churches can't, you know, rally around just one person. You know, there'll always be one guy who's making the call over everybody. It always gets complicated. It just is. Uh, why things are the way they are and why things can't be more idealistic and everybody just all flowing together. I don't know. Maybe it's because of sin. Maybe because we're fallen nature. I, I don't know. But it, it always, even in this glorious state of 100% devotion to Christ and everybody getting rid of everything and they're all living together and serving Jesus together what happens we're fighting over the money the elders those guys your widow's got more money than my widow my, how, how come those Greek widows are getting more money than the Hebrew that's not right that ain't right that ain't right I saw all that's all right there you know and maybe they weren't the leader said, dude, we're not going to mess with this. Get a bunch of deacons together, spiritual men you trust, and, and let them work it out. And I'm sure they worked it out. I'm sure they still had their issues. All which brings us back to Timothy. Because they did have their issues. And years later, they're still dealing with a lot of these kinds of issues. Now, what happened after this point on, we, we never did see this anymore in the, in the, uh, in the New Testament. You didn't see any more examples of uh, this big communal living kind of thing. But what did uh, seem to stay in place from that point on was this idea that the church would take care of widows. Even way back at the beginning, the fight was over the widows and stuff. Well, they all quit being, you know, hippies for Jesus per se. Uh, uh, But they still, the church had this policy that one of the ministries of the church is we're going to take care of widows. Uh, And quite frankly, there were probably a great deal of them. Um, we live in a country, thank God, where people tend to live much longer. Uh, 2,000 years ago, you know, you get pneumonia, you're dead. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you, you get an infection from a rusty nail, dude, you're, you're checking out. I mean, there, there was a much higher mortality rate. Uh, and while if something happened to the wife, the guy had the ability to go on and earn income. Because it was totally male-dominated culture back then. You think it's bad today? It's nothing. This is this is nothing. Back then, it was all male-dominated. And and if something happened to the guy and the woman was by herself, she was just out in the cold. If she didn't have family or something, she was doomed. I mean, there was no way she could survive. And the church saw this need, and and, and it's always about looking at needs. So they had this idea of helping these widows. Now, <clears throat> what would happen? Was a woman would become a widow. Let's say she's only in her 20s. Maybe her 30s. We don't know. Again, guys would die for all kinds of, of reasons. Then you add into the fact of the persecution. A lot of them you know, were being killed for that. Just the bottom line, there were a lot of women. Uh, some of them were the older widows. Some were younger widows. And uh, some of these younger widows in their passion and in their zeal and their excitement would say, they'd make a pledge. They'd make a vow to God, which... <coughs> I argue with my brother about it all the time. I don't think it's really such a smart thing to do. But they, they would make this vow to God that they're going to be totally committed to Christ. And I'm never going to remarry again. I loved him and I'll, <laughs> I'll miss him. And, and uh, you know, and, and, and then they would become part of this, if they didn't have family, part of this uh, group. Well, anyway, problems started coming in here. We, we just got a few minutes here. Let me wrap this up and get through this. I'm just going to kind of read through a lot of this here. What, the, what he's trying to do is lay out the rules for how to handle this. So, here we go. If a, now, give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. Why? Because there's some that aren't really in need. If a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family 
and so repaying their parents and their grandparents for this is pleasing to God. This is where the Bible is very strong in this idea that uh, you have, we have the responsibility to take care of our parents, our grandparents. Um, I know this is a hot button issue for a lot of people. I know a lot of couples who fight over this very issue. I've got guys who call me and say, you know, my wife wants us to take care of their parents, but I don't know, it just gets in the way, and we ain't able to have the kind of family we should have. What should I do? You should, let, you should bring them in, take care of their family. They get mad. They don't hear that. But that's what the Bible teaches. You know, we live in a very self-centered culture today, and where it's, if we're inconvenienced, it can't possibly be God's will. Praise our holy name. <clears throat> but he's saying the right thing is that if you got family, that family should take care of these elderly people and uh, I won't be able to get into all I'll, I'll say that for next week and talk more about that but um, if I remember um, the widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues day and night to pray and ask God for help these are the people they should be helping see but the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives who's he talking about younger widows he uses some pretty strong terminology here, but he says, give the people these instructions too, so that no one may be open to blame. If anyone does not provide for his own relatives, especially his immediate family, if you aren't taking care of your relatives, good grief, how many people is that? And particularly your immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now one has to think, How can one be worse than an unbeliever? But he calls them worse than an unbeliever if you don't. Now, I know there's all kinds of questions. Oh, man, how do you handle that? How do you deal with the finances? Okay, we don't have time to get into that. Maybe I'll I'll touch it, hopefully, again, if I remember next week. And and the drugs wear off. Um, But but this idea of just, you know, I don't need to take care of my parents. You know, they're so secure. Let them take care of it. The government can take care of it. It's not a Christian perspective. No widow may be put on the list, what list? The list of widows, unless she's over 60 years of age. So he's trying to keep the younger ones out. Has been faithful to her husband and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, helping those in trouble and devoting to all kinds of good. So number one, she's got to be over 60 and a really committed believer. I mean, he's really trying to be strict on who gets on the list that they take care of. If they don't have family to take care of them. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Um, Again, he uses some very strong terminology. But basically, finally, you know, the husband's been dead for years. Uh, They start feeling, you know, like any normal single person would start feeling again. They They didn't think of that when they first made this vow and commitment to God. And then now they want to remarry. Now they're in trouble. Now you got this problem. You made this promise. You're going to be a widow for the rest of your life. Again, another reason you shouldn't be making vows. My brother would disagree. Um, thus, we, they bring judgment on themselves because they've broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going from house to house. You know, just gossiping. Uh, they, and not only do they become idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel young widows to marry. See, he wasn't against them getting married. The context, it makes sense now. When you, you, that's why we've got to go back and put these things in context. Uh, what, what he's saying is, don't, uh, just get married. Don't, don't, if you're going to be a widow, 
get married again. Is what he's telling them. Don't make this big commitment to God. And then later you can't live up to the commitment. And now everybody thinks you're a jerk. And, and uh, you know just don't go there. So uh, number one I just counsel them. Get married. Have children. Manage your homes. And, and don't give the enemy any opportunity to slander. Uh, some have in fact already turned away to follow uh, Satan. <clears throat> if, uh, why? Some people will give up on their faith. Which you got to be really careful with. You know, some of you, bless your hearts, single people in the church, a lot of single women so desperately want a man in their lives that they will follow anybody or anything, any opportunity. And whether or not he's a believer in Jesus is of no consequence to, to you. Don't, don't go down that road. <clears throat> you could wind up just losing your faith altogether. It's, it's a dangerous place. You should only be ever dating someone who's totally committed to Jesus Christ. I know a lot of girls say, well, I'll win them to Jesus. It doesn't happen very often. It, it does happen, but it doesn't happen very often, and, and, and it's really an unbiblical thing to do. If any woman who is a believer has a widow in her family, she should help them and not let the church be burdened with them, so that the church can help those widows who really are in need. All of that just to deal with this issue of widows. Um, it was it was the one area where uh, the church was. Um, Basically, the only uh, social net that uh, they had. Now, granted, we do have social nets today, and there's nothing wrong with taking into account social security and government programs and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, we as believers should not be getting out of our responsibility to, uh, to our elderly parents. And, and again, I'll, I'll, I'll try and remember next week to pick that up. Okay? So, there. We're done. Not the most dynamic part, but it's still good stuff. You know, you see, you see the church, you see the teaching, where do they get? Uh, if you start reading all this stuff, widows should marry, uh, they're breaking their vows, they're, what is all this? I don't understand it. Hopefully now this becomes very clear to you so you can understand what they're talking about. Next week we'll pick it up and uh, talks about uh, elders, talks about paying uh, those who minister in the gospel. Uh, interesting debate here about how much you're supposed to pay a preacher. We'll talk about that uh, next week. All fascinating stuff uh, in the scriptures here. All right, let's. Uh, we're going to close with our offering. We'll ask the ushers to come down, and we'll celebrate the Lord with our giving this evening. I know a lot of you. Uh, for a lot of people, this is their only chance to even uh, come to church. They can't come on, on uh, Sundays. Uh, I even know some of you, bless your hearts, you choose to only come to the service because you like this better than Sunday mornings. Fine with me, it doesn't bother me in the least. I mean, some people, they, they just like the extended teachings more than, than the, the shorter sermons on Sunday. Actually, I like it when you come to everything I do, makes me happier. But, uh, <coughs> you know, <laughs> that's not required. Um, let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word, for your truth, for your faithfulness. Lord, bless your people. Lord, I pray that you will heal me of this cold. I have uh, lots of speaking to do this week into people's lives and on Sunday I just pray that you just touch me and heal me of this thing. Thank you that you uh, empower us to do your will. Bless your people God. Use this money for the advancement of your kingdom we pray in Jesus name. Everybody said Amen.